Welcome back to Double Feature, the IDS film podcast where the powers that be let us in a podcast booth to give you hot takes and maybe some lukewarm ones too. I'm Annie Aguiar, and my co-host Chris Forrester isn't here right now because sometimes at Double Feature, we make mistakes. Like when today I accidentally recorded over our intro and didn't realize until after we had stopped recording. The regular episode will follow. I just wanted to pop in and explain what's going on. This week we're discussing two films, Vertigo, the Alfred Hitchcock classic, and Mulholland Drive, the David Lynch neo-noir surrealist fever dream of a movie. Both are preoccupied with ideas of power and control, especially as they relate to the conventions of the genre of film noir, with Vertigo being a straightforward example of that genre, and Mulholland Drive instead commenting upon it decades later with a Lynchian twist. I hope you enjoy our discussion, and sorry for the technical difficulties. I getcha. So what do you want to talk about first? Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. I <laughs> love Mulholland Drive. How many times have you seen Mulholland Drive? Too many to count, and I still don't understand it completely. <laughs> um, as is the norm with many of the movies we talk about on Double Feature, I had never seen this movie before. And Chris told me it was one of his favorites for like months and months and months before I actually watched it in his apartment with him. Upon my first watching, I was blown away by how good that movie was and also blown away by what was that movie about or trying to say or what happened or who were the characters. If you're unfamiliar with Mulholland Drive, Chris, do you want to describe it? Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, Well, it is by David Lynch, who is one of the strangest filmmakers out there. All of his works are like deeply surreal, really puzzling, weird a lot of them are variants upon like film noir tropes. Um, and Mulholland Drive is about an aspiring actress who moves to Los Angeles to try to jumpstart her career. And she meets this woman who's in her apartment who's been in a car accident and has no clue who she is. So the two of them work to investigate this mystery of who is this woman and how did she end up there. And it's to very... say that chaos ensues is an understatement. Yeah. It's very like... The initial premise is supposed to be that take on film noir with, ah, this beautiful dame doesn't know who she is, has $50,000 in her purse and a mysterious key. What's going to happen here? But no one knows what happens here. And after it happens, you still don't know. One of the things, I'm not even 100% sure what these characters' names are. Yes. (laughs) It took me until I think the third or fourth time I watched this movie to even put together that like the opening credit sequence is like actually vital plot information oh not God. that it's just weird shots of people dancing the opening credit sequence looks nothing like the rest of the movie it's just these like things of different people dancing on this bright colored background and like big faces like laughing it's it's really kind of unsettling, jarring and horrific and like not a way to start your movie unless you're David Lynch and that's just where you're at as a person. But, oh my God, it's one of our heroines, the blonde actress, Betty. She was a jitterbug competition like champion in Canada and then moves to L.A. to be a celebrity. But 
since it's David Lynch, uh, things don't go especially well for her. But you're not even sure of how they go. Um, this is a movie that defies narrative logic. Yes, and, as many of Lynch's movies yeah, do. Yeah, that's kind of the point. To be honest, I'm not too, too, too familiar with everything David Lynch has done. My middle school art teacher was like, Annie, you need to watch David Lynch stuff. And I never did. I'm sorry, Mr. Taylor. Uh, I've seen some Twin Peaks, and I know that's one of Chris's, like, things. But I Basically just, anything by David Lynch I'm in love with. I could just never... I know it's the type of thing where I would like it if I sat down and actually watched all of it, but I could just never could do all of that. Yeah. And I know because I loved Mulholland Drive, like, it's very much up my alley. But after watching Mulholland Drive for the first thing, one of the... Like, first things that occurred to me is kind of David Lynch's, like, relationship to and how he views the role of story and plot. Because, like, other directors and other filmmakers, you know, they follow the plot of their movie and the plot is important. David Lynch feels like it feels beneath him to have a plot line or a story. It feels like he's using that to get his weird thoughts to the viewer, but he feels constrained by plot. And I feel like you definitely see that in this movie where if, like, if he didn't have to have a plot, he would not. He would just yes. have... and there have been times yeah. when he hasn't had a plot and it's been glorious. Yeah. His movies tend to defy any like clean interpretation. Like There's no one like universal theory that you can apply to... Mulholland Drive and understand all of the little like nuances of it which is why I think I love it so much because it's not one of those clean cut like Christopher Nolan movies where like even though it's fun to sort of piece together like the symbolism of like oh this character being in this hotel room means x um I think that David Lynch's movies are better sort of like generally understood like I watch Twin Peaks The Return or I watch Mulholland Drive and I get the broad strokes of the ideas. And then a lot of times the the smaller like textures and details are like purely about the sensations. They're about the way that he can make you feel. Yeah. He's so good at playing with that. Mm -hmm. Like he breaks basically every rule you can conceive of. David Lynch has no reverence for it other than how can I manipulate this to make you feel uncomfortable. For this movie, the single greatest hi, this scene is just to make you feel a thing, oh, is yes. the diner scene. There's a scene that is fairly unrelated to the rest of the plot, but you can definitely like see ties and everything. But it's two men having a discussion in a diner, and one of them is talking about a nightmare that he has. And it's the single scariest scene I've ever seen in a movie, maybe, yes. but it's not ridiculously complex. It's so scary because David Lynch is, as he proves in just this scene, is a master of making you uncomfortable and of tension. He knows how to do that tension. It's like the scene's less than five minutes and the scary thing only happens for like a couple seconds. But, but the the discomfort oh. is like bubbling beneath the surface the whole time and you can like feel it ready to like reach some apex. And then when that happens, I've seen this movie so many times and I've <laughs> seen that specific scene so many more. And it's a testament to how like truly weird it is that like 
it scares me every time. Often with jump scares, it's like once you've seen the movie once or twice and you know it's coming. Yeah. It's like a hollow sort of like, oh, you got me. But that scene still like produces a physical, like visceral reaction in me. Yeah. And like I just such saw a deep, it. yeah. We just we watched, just the watched it multiple times. Jumped it. It's and like I like, yeah. I made a noise. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's sometimes I just like call the scene up on YouTube to watch. Also, call it up on YouTube. I now notice it's a very old person thing. This yeah. Say. Are you my like third grade teacher? I am, and I'm gonna show you a scene from Mulholland Drive and then get fired. You're gonna call it up on YouTube. Yeah. So, uh, one other thing about this movie, I always forget. I always forget Justin Thoreau is like in this movie. Yes. And, like, um, in this movie. Speaking of in this movie, Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah. What? This is such a. Everything about this movie is off-putting. Yes. I. <laughs> before we recording, I was reading this thing, like a Salon article, right after it came out. Of people are like, "What's going on in this movie?" And it was like question and answer format. And <laughs> one of the questions was. What's going on with the box? And the answer was, we don't know what's going on with the box <laughs> because it's just so it's so filled with puzzles and they're not designed to be solved. Yes. They're just there to throw you off because that's the feeling that David Lynch is trying to accomplish. And I feel this is just from what I've heard about all of his work, this is certainly one of the more approachable things. You know? Mulholland Drive? I mean, like, it's Twin not, Peaks? It's certainly not his most out there. I would say yeah. the third season of Twin Peaks and Lost Highway are his sort of, like, of what I've seen. And I haven't seen Inland Empire, which is, I think, the, like, apex of weird David Lynch. Yeah. But, like, those are his most out there, like, incomprehensible. But Mulholland Drive is, like, oh, pretty weird. Oh, it's super weird. Pretty but weird. Like, early Twin acknowledge Peaks, it as a movie. Early Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet... And Dune, I think, are his most like readily accessible movies. Okay. Um, and TV work, but Blue like Blue Velvet, just like I know nothing about it, but just the idea of it scares me. Yeah. It's just so. Oh, uh, we totally didn't even talk about Silencio. Silencio, no hay banda. <sighs> um, it, it's you gotta watch it's it. It's a, a scene from the film. I think that's another one of those like key scenes that are like such a testament to how good he is at like manipulating you. Where like if you think about that on paper it's ridiculous like it's laughably ridiculous but like that scene is so riveting it's so like emotionally powerful yeah and the performances are amazing naomi watts especially i adore her as an actress and i think this is like by far her best performance ever i think the is the singer in silencio does she do like roy orbison's crying but in spanish yes llorando ah that I, it's just so I love beautiful and sad, and it hits you in a way you're not expected to be hit, just like the characters who are in attendance. Yes, it's, and I, another thing that I love about David Lynch is that he'll have these sort of, like like I said earlier, where like you, you're meant to understand things in the broad strokes, and like not everything has to fit together. So like there's an interpretation that I subscribe to of that scene as sort of like, an allusion to like filmmaking and how like everything you're seeing is like completely fabricated. Like it's this scene of this woman performing um, a song, but then it's revealed that like she's not actually performing; she's just lip syncing, and there's a recording. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't necessarily like fit into the plot of the movie, but like this idea of of artifice and of like fabrication is so vital to it. I'm usually not there for 
things that are like uh here's a film with like the overarching message that like hollywood is like fake and exploits people and uses them this and like a star is born are the only incarnations of that, that idea I that will That should accept. have been our double feature. <laughs> a Star is Born and Mulholland Drive. I mean, I think I made that joke before that, like, Mulholland Drive is my favorite A Star is Born remake. <laughs> it's just so... I'll only accept that, like, Banksy-esque, like, mm, commercialism bad from this because it's so weird. Yes. You know? Yeah. So, Vertigo? Vertigo. Vertigo. So I, (laughs) as I've done with like other movies we've talked about here, I first saw this movie with my dad because it played at the Tampa Theater. Ugh, I'm so jealous of you getting to see this in a theater. And it's like an old historic theater from like the 20s. Like it was so amazing. But Vertigo is pretty much regarded as like Hitchcock's greatest movie. Uh, Do you want to? I I think it's tied for my favorite of his with North by Northwest. But um, why don't you tell us about Vertigo, Annie, since I took Mulholland Drive. This one's easier to explain. All right. Vertigo follows Scotty, who's Jimmy Stewart. Yes. Ah, I just love Jimmy Stewart. So do I. Scotty is a – he was a former detective? Yes. Okay, yeah. It's a former detective who has an issue with vertigo. As you see in the opening scene of the movie, he's involved in this like chase over the tops of buildings, and he falls flat, not literally, because <laughs> he has vertigo and couldn't make a certain jump. So he's all anxious and caught up in his own head, and then he enters this kind of strange dynamic with this blonde woman and her husband, yes. and it just he's kind hired of, to. Yeah follow her to get intel for her husband and then things grow ever more complicated it's a whole mess it is but i I love this movie chris has a poster up of this i do have a poster up of this movie in my living room i forgot that until you said it yeah this is such a good movie it's so like visually beautiful like the cinematography and some of the set design there are so many sequences of this movie that I don't even like necessarily remember specifically where they fit into the plot, but I just remember like how enrapturing they are to watch. Like them in the woods, her like falling into the ocean mm-hmm. by the Golden Gate Bridge, um, the shot of the iconic shot of her and the green light. I was just about to bring up the green light thing. That was when I first watched the movie, that was the thing that stuck with me like the most. And I remember driving away from the theater with my dad and talking about it. And I was like, it's totally Gatsby. It's totally like a fun, dumb little Gatsby illusion that like the object of his desire is in this green light. And my dad was like, what? No. <laughs> no, I think it is. No, it's 100% that's what that is. But, yeah, it's dealing with a lot of the same issues, kind of, as Mulholland Drive. Just the idea of control and, and identity. women being used in certain ways. Yes, but. there are both of these movies, not to go too far in um, to spoil either of them, but deal with identity in a weird way where there's this sort of, like, duality that we experience with the characters of, mm-hmm. like, who are they really... Um, what is like what it what is sort of like an identity that's assigned to them and like who are they in spite yeah. of that the two films are definitely in conversation with each other there's actually like a vertigo reference arguably in Mulholland Drive what when what are you um, thinking the wig oh yes yeah 
There's okay. There's a thing in both movies where a brunette character is turned into a blonde. Yes, and that in Vertigo makes sense as part of the narrative, but in Mulholland Drive, it makes like a little bit less sense. Yes, but when you understand that it's a fun reference back to Hitchcock, then it all fits together. But God, no Vertigo is. I need to rewatch it a million times. Hitchcock is so good at, like, taking a really, really complicated plot and making it so... I mean, he's earns the title of Master of Suspense yeah. because he really just takes you with this and you're completely hooked by it the entire time. It's not a short movie, and, like, it's at risk of, I think, feeling so much longer than it is because the plot is so complicated mm-hmm. and it's sort of, like, I think defies a traditional three-act structure because there's so many different stages that the plot goes through. But you're just into it the entire time. You're yeah. riveted. Yeah. It's definitely like it leaves you with I'm always impressed by like older movies that leave you with such a weird, complex feeling at the end of it. Because you really do get to see the point in I would think like largely American cinema, because I don't watch a lot of like old foreign films except yeah. for Dario that one time. Suspiria. <laughs> but you definitely get a sense of when movies switched from we're making movies. This is like conventions to we're playing with it. Like this is I was like this obviously isn't perfect with eras lining up. But I was saying to Chris before we started recording that like Vertigo is kind of the modern take upon these. And then Mulholland Drive is the postmodern we don't care about narrative yeah. like coherence but if the idea of a non-coherent narrative of Mulholland Drive is too like off-putting for a viewer I would say Vertigo is like very good to watch in place of that yes and I think it's also one of the well, you could argue whether this is like an intentional reading of it or not, um, but I think it's really one of the only times that a Hitchcock film has confronted his like the way that he views women. I mean, mm-hmm. he's sort of like a common criticism of him is that he makes a lot of movies about violence against women. And like he on set was notorious for mistreating his like female um, stars like he he notoriously like threw birds at um, Tippi Hedren on the set of The Birds and like. She was terrified. Um, But the way that this movie deals with, like, the male gaze and, like, a man's desire to, like, control a woman is really interesting. Yeah, I could see that to a point. But there then still is the traditional of women are being used. And I, I for one, am not – like, I – get that point and I appreciate it and I'd see its validity. However, I'm only going to go so far in giving Hitchcock credit for feminism. Yes, but it's also like giving Hitchcock credit for feminism in like a film that's decades old. Yeah, it's, oh God. Yeah, this movie's more than 50 years old. Jesus, I'm really upset I didn't get to see it at the Buskirk Chumley. Yeah, I didn't either. I was out of town. I was just sick. (laughs) Ugh, that's unfortunate. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Double Feature. I've been Annie. I am Chris. And next time we'll be talking about spring breakers in honor of spring break. Yeah. Have a fun spring break, guys.